Hey, and thanks so much for taking a moment to visit our podcast. Our mission at Antioch FBC is to grow in the knowledge and love of Jesus and go to our neighbors in the nations. We want you to be encouraged by this podcast and hope even more that you would come be a part of what God is doing in the community of Antioch. To find out more, visit us at www.antiochfirstbaptist.org. And now, stay tuned for a message from Pastor Matt. This passage is the single most discussed passage in all of the Gospel of Matthew. It is the single most discussed passage in all of the Gospel of Matthew. It contains one of the most repeated phrases in all of his Gospel, as we just heard read. But when Jesus says to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now this phrase, upon this rock, has an even more personal meaning for me. Because when I was a teenager, a family opened up a laser tag, putt-putt place right outside of the town nearing, nearing us. And they were believers. And they called it Upon This Rock. Did I ever take you there? Okay. So, uh, but that's what it was. And so, when you hear Upon This Rock, I Will Build My Church, you might immediately think of this biblical passage, or you might think of Peter For me, when I hear this phrase mentioned, I have this visceral response of immediately smelling stinky teenagers who have been running around for hours playing laser tag. But we're not going to talk about stinky teenagers and laser tag today. Today we're going to talk about how this is a literal shift in how Jesus, one, is revealed as the Christ but also how he plans to establish his church on the earth. So before we go to our text, as we have made our practice, let us pause. Let us ready our hearts. Ask the Spirit to take the scales from our eyes, to give us ears to hear. And we do this by taking a moment of silence before the Lord. And again, I mentioned this week to week. If this is your first time or you're not accustomed to silence, it can be a scary place to be. And so if you find your mind racing or your thoughts bombarding, simply pray this prayer, Spirit, calm my heart and give me ears to hear. So let's do that this morning. Amen. So as we've been walking through this book of Matthew, again, we keep seeing the Pharisees and the Sadducees sort of trying to take down Jesus and his disciples. Last week we saw that Jesus gives a warning to his disciples about them when he says, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now think about it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees have been the leaders of the church up until this point. 
and for an, a long established time. If you were associated with worshiping in the temple, worshiping the one true God in any way, you went through the direction and the leadership of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? But now, Jesus is shifting all of that because he says directly to his disciples, stay away from these corrupt leaders. Don't allow their leaven to enter into your life. And he gives us two particular ways. There were one we're going to look at today, one we'll look at next week, on how he is basing or establishing his church. The first one, as we're going to see today, is confessing Jesus as the divine Christ. We should be a church who confesses Jesus as the divine Christ. And then next week we will see him establishing the second way, which is following Jesus as the suffering Christ. But again, let's look at that first one today with this conversation and this confession that Peter makes. And again, I want to give this sort of precursor. As I mentioned, again, this is one of the most discussed texts of all the Gospel of Matthew. Honestly, we could spend several weeks breaking all of this down. We're not going to, okay? You don't have to worry. Um, what we're going to do, we're going to look at some specific phrases that are in this passage. So if I don't touch on or if I don't spend a lot of time on maybe a phrase that you're interested in or that you would want some more explanation for, let's get together and let's talk about it. I, I have enjoyed just going through this text. But if I don't touch particularly on something you would want to know or, or I have questions about, let me know. We only have a certain amount of time today, so we're going to spend it on just a few. But let's dive in. Look at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? What an interesting question that Jesus asks. This word people, we could also sort of translate it as the word world. Who does the world say that I am? Or, if you want to think about it this way, who do those outside the church say that I am? But that's not how Jesus asked the question, is it? Notice how he asked the question. He uses a particular phrase when he says, who do people say the Son of Man is? Jesus is affirming in this very simple way, I am the Christ. He is not simply asking, what's the word on the street about some random guy, Jesus? No, not at all. He is putting himself in the position as the Christ. What do and who do people say that the Son of Man is? And as we see, yeah, there's some options floating around out there. Look at verse 14. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, we already covered John the Baptist. Do you remember several weeks back, we, we saw how Herod the Tetrarch was telling everyone that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. So we've already heard that one. But others, they're saying he's Elijah. 
And I kind of understand this one a little bit. Of all of them, this one makes more sense to me. Because if you remember the story of Elijah, Elijah was a prophet. And he was not only a prophet, he was a, a, an incredible prophet who had an incredible experience that no other person has experienced. He was the prophet, as you know, that called fire down from heaven. Not only did he call fire down from heaven, he called fire down from heaven to ignite an altar that had been drenched in water. So as to prove that he was a prophet of the one true God. But do you remember how, uh, I have to use these quotes, do you remember how Elijah died? He didn't. He was taken up in a chariot of fire. So for me, I can make that connection of people going, oh, this must be Elijah. Yeah, we never saw him die, he's just come back. So that one, it makes sense. Others say he is Jeremiah or just one of the prophets. I think needless to say, what we need to see is that people understood that Jesus was not just some regular guy. He was at least, at the very minimum, he was confirmed as a prophet. But then things get real. Things now shift. He shifts from, who do they say that I am, to verse 15. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? This is the most vital question that every single person from the beginning of time will answer. Who do you say that I am? Every single person will answer that question. They'll either answer it here on earth or... They will answer it at the final judgment when standing before Jesus. See, this is why scripture tells us every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Because at some point, every single person will be faced with this question. Who do you say that I am? Look at Peter's response. Verse 16. Simon Peter, sort of the leader of the disciples, answered up and he said, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, here's what I want us to understand. The context in which Peter is giving this answer, this was not just an easy yes and amen. Think about what's going on in the world at this time. The religious rulers... The leaders of the church are coming against him and Jesus trying to take him down. The Roman government is terrorizing the Jewish people and they are begging for a Messiah that would come and overthrow this power. But as we know, that's not what Jesus came to do at all. And so I say all this because I want us to figure out like, the easier answer for Peter would be to deny Jesus, which is why we see him do it later on. Caveat, we'll get there. But the easier answer for that would be to not affirm who Jesus is, because everyone around them is against them. Everyone around them is plotting against Jesus and the disciples to try to take them down. But instead, Peter made this profession of faith 
that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Frederick Bruner, one of the theologians I study, here's how he summed it up. He said, Peter did not say, for example, I think you are the Christ. As if this conviction is simply Peter's opinion or subjective. Nor did he say, this is good, for us you are the Christ. As though this was simply a Christian opinion. And so it could be relative for other people that there may be other Christs or other saviors. No, Peter quite boldly says, you are the Christ. And Bruner comments, it is where this confession is gladly believed with this heart and so confessed with the mouth that a church arises and lives. Look at verse 17. Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father and heaven. And we're going to spend most of our time this morning here on this verse and then in the next one. So let's start here. Jesus, in this simple statement, lays out the foundation of the gospel when he says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. God is the one who saves. We cannot save ourselves. It is Him and Him alone that saves. We cannot on our own decision say, Jesus is the Christ. We cannot with our own intellect discover that Jesus is the Christ. Some have said, well, Jesus has done the work and now it's up to us to believe. That doesn't fit here. That doesn't fit with this explanation on how Peter, the most trusted disciple, came to his understanding of who Jesus is. It is God and God alone that reveals that to us. He and he alone reveals to us that Jesus is the Christ. And then through conviction of the Holy Spirit, it is then and only then that we can say, Jesus is Lord. It is God who removes the scales from our eyes. It is God who softens our heart and heart and transforms it from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And then once that transformation has taken place, then and only then can we repent, confess, and believe. We must understand that faith in Christ as told to us here, right here in this passage, is a gift from God. Now we know because of John 3.16 that Jesus is a gift of God, right? We can all recite it. He sent His Son as a gift for us. But we must also see and understand that even the faith to believe in Jesus is a gift of God. 
John tells us in the beginning of his gospel, in John chapter 1, in verses 10 through 13, and listen, this is what he says. He said, he, he being Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was created through him. I love that because that puts him back in the Garden of Eden as a Trinitarian member of creation. It's just beautiful theology right there. And it says, and yet the world did not recognize him. That's in the middle of what's happening right now with the disciples and with Peter. But look at verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name. And look, how were they born? They were born... Not of natural descent, not of a will of the flesh or the will of man. None of those things made them born again. But what is the last of 13 said? No, but of God. God is the one who saves. God is the one who reveals the Son of God to us so that we can believe. If that's not enough, we could go all day long. But you know I quote this passage all the time. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. What does it say? For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not of yourselves. (laughs) Why? It's a gift of God. It is God's gift to us. And then he explains it even more in verse 9. Not of works. Why? So that no one can boast. It is God's gift to us. Our salvation. And our worship of King Jesus will forever change when we fully realize that even our faith to believe in Jesus as our Savior is a gift from the Father. We did not choose God. But God, in his marvelous grace, chose us. And when we really understand that, our worship changes. Because we are acknowledging the undeserving grace that all of us in this room can easily say we don't deserve. Yet he lavished it on us. We can pour out our heart in worship because of his kindness towards us. This right here is the good news of the gospel. This here, Jesus proclaiming, son, Peter, son of Jonah, you did not understand this through flesh and blood, only through the power of God. Now we could go home. (laughs) We could be happy. And some of you go like, well, let's not, let's do it. Ah, I got more to do. But, But we could, we could be done. Like that's enough. The favor of the Lord and his kindness and his grace on us. But as I said, there's another verse that comes after this. So look at Matthew chapter 16, verse number 18. And I also say to you, Peter, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, there are many different views of what Jesus is meaning here. 
There are many different understandings of what Jesus means when he tells Peter, upon this rock, he will build his church. And I promise you, we could spend hours walking through all of those different understandings. Some say that Peter was given a special position at this point. Some say that he was affirming Peter's confession. Again, those are both implications and both views that we could spend hours going down. But we're not going to cover those today. Again, if you want to talk about that later, let's, let's get together. But here's where I want us to see, and here's where I want us to put our focus. What did Jesus say he would do? He says, I will build my church. There is such hope for us in that statement that Jesus will build his church. It is not up to us to build his church. Jesus will build it. It's not based on the programs we have or the programs we don't have. It's not based on the type of outreach that we do or the type of outreach that we don't do. We don't have to look at other churches in the area or across the country or across the world and go, well, let me see how they're growing and let me try to mimic and do everything that they're doing and then we'll grow as well. No, that's not how it works. We do not and we cannot build his church. Jesus builds his church. Now, before you sit there and before I sit there and think, good, I don't have to show up Wednesday and pack train ministry bags. (laughs) Good. I don't have to go Friday and stand at the end of the road and and, and hand out train ministry bags. Good. I don't have to come to movie nights and watch movies that I care nothing about. (laughs) I don't have to worry about signing up for small groups. I don't have to worry about inviting my neighbor to come with me. To those, I I can quit worrying about going to my neighbors and the nations. If Jesus is the one who builds his church, I can just sit back and watch him build it. I hope you understand I'm being facetious. If you've been with us, remember back to the two feeding miracles that we looked at. We looked at Jesus feeding the 5,000, and then a couple of chapters later, we looked at Jesus feeding the 4,000. In both of those miracles, who did Jesus give the food to? You can say it. The disciples. The disciples is who Jesus gave the food to. So the disciples... Christ is still the one who builds his church, but in his perfect providence, and I'll honestly admit I would do it a different way other than putting it in the, in the work and giving our opportunity as broken as we are to be a part of building his church. I don't understand it, but according to his perfect providence, he chose you and I to be a part of it. This is why... The psalmist says in Psalm 127, Unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. There is comfort in knowing that Christ 
builds his church. And instead of causing us to take a step back, it should cause us to press in even more. You know why? Because if Christ builds his church, there is no hopeless cause. There is no neighborhood that is too far gone if Christ builds his church. There is not one section of the city that can be given up on and deemed unreachable if Christ builds his church. There cannot be one addict that can't be made sober if Christ builds his church. There can't be one son or daughter or relationship too far gone that can't be mended if Christ builds his church. There is not one member too far stuck in tradition whose heart can't be changed if Christ builds his church. Antioch is ripe for the harvest. If you can't tell, I'm excited about this. I have been so light. There's so much life that has been given in my study through this week of encouragement for what God has been speaking to us as a church and for what he has for us today. But I want you to hear Antioch is ripe for the harvest if Christ is building his church. Because the Spirit of God is going out before us and is readying the hearts and the lives of our neighbors and the nations if Christ builds His church. So if Christ builds His church, then we must be a people ready to receive His church. And ready to welcome them in. No matter if they look different than we do. No matter if their household speaks a different language than we do. No matter if they may think differently than we do. But in order for us to do this, we must do as we see Peter do. And we must confess without wavering that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I love how MacArthur sums it up. He said this. He said, it's not faithful believers who build Christ's church, but Christ who builds His church through faithful believers. Wherever His people are committed to His kingdom and His righteousness, the Lord builds His church. And if believers in one place become cold or disobedient, Christ does not stop building, but simply starts work somewhere else. His church truly is always under construction. At the end of verse 18, we see this phrase, the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And I will be honest, I've used this verse completely out of context before, so I need to repent. Because we look at this verse, and you may have heard this verse used and say, oh, if we read that the gates of Hades will not overpower it or not overtake it, then that means that whatever Satan tries to try to stop the church, it's not going to work. Now that is true, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. 
It would have been completely understood by Peter when he said the gates of Hades that Jesus was talking about death. Now hang with me. I want to try to get it as as, as clear as I can. Think about if you were engaged in a battle. Is a gate an offensive weapon or a defensive weapon? It's a defensive weapon. Why? Because a gate is not something that you use to attack someone with. It, it's used to keep something in or keep something out, right? So it would be considered a defensive weapon. So it would have been understood by Peter that in this day and time, that phrase, gates of Hades, was representing death. So the gates of Hades, knowing to be what kept people who are dead in. So what's Jesus trying to say here? Not even death can hold back the power of the gospel. See, think about it. Jesus has not been put on the cross yet. Jesus has not suffered and died in resurrection. So the idea at this point was death is finality. Death is the end. And so Jesus is establishing with his disciples the gates of Hades can't even keep the power of the gospel at bay, meaning even death can't keep someone from me. Isn't that good news? Jesus is saying not even death can hold back those who believe. Or in other words, death is not the end for those who believe. Because the gates of death cannot hold those who have faith in Jesus. Look at verse 19 and 20. He finishes up. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Again, there are many different views and many different interpretations of what these verses actually mean. But in my work this week, here's the conclusion that I came to is what I believe these verses mean. I I don't believe these verses are about any power that we hold to cause things to happen or to not happen. I believe what Jesus is describing here is the power of the gospel that's going to go forth even after he leaves. And here's why. Think about it this way with me. He says that he gives us the keys of the kingdom, right? What does a key do? A key gets you in somewhere, right? So how does one enter heaven? Through the power of the gospel. So if when the gospel is preached and when the gospel is heard, one of two things happen. Either hearts are hardened or bound, or hearts are softened and loosed. These verses are not giving us the power to manifest whatever we want to have happen here on earth. These verses in no way usurp the sovereign rule of our king. These verses are meant to encourage us to be faithful to share the gospel because the gospel is the key to the kingdom of heaven. 
And when we share the keys of the kingdom, the power of the gospel with the world, then we get to watch the power of the gospel go forth and lose or bind the things on earth. And so what Jesus is saying here is saying, if the gospel is preached and someone on earth receives the gospel, their heart is loosed and it will be loosed in heaven as well. But if the gospel is preached and it is rejected, that heart will be bound, it will be hardened. And if it is bound here on earth, it will be bound and hardened in heaven as well and they will not enter the kingdom of God. That's the keys of the kingdom. So for us as a church, this is such a timely word. Do we truly believe that Jesus is building his church? And are we faithfully going to follow his leading as we continue on? And are we going to trust in his provision and his direction? In order for us to take those steps, we must believe what Jesus has said to us today, that he is building his church. We are to be faithful in our confession that he is the Messiah and trust that as we are committed to his kingdom and his righteousness, he will build his church. JJ, you can come on up. But here's the more pressing question. The more pressing question I've already asked and I've told you we all must answer it. Here it is. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say the Son of Man is? Maybe you've never been asked that question. Maybe you've been around the things of Jesus, but have never dealt with that question for yourself. So I'll ask it again. Who do you say the Son of Man is? Is he just an add-on to your life? Is it just something that is socially acceptable here in the South and so we call ourselves a Christian? Is it just something that you wear on the outside like the Pharisees, yet the inside of your heart you know has never been changed? This morning, would we take a moment and all ask ourselves this question, who do we say the Son of Man is?